I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, it's the finale of Marine Month. We're diving down to the bottom of the ocean. How do we explore the mysteries of the deep? And can we, and should we, mine its resources? Plus, a shift in our understanding of volcanoes, a new super-powerful quantum computer, and why size really does matter when it comes to speed. I'm Greer Jackson. I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Every day, thousands of people around the world suffer serious injuries from accidents. Many die at the scene, but a significant number survive the initial insult, only to develop a fatal complication later called multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. But why do these victims die and who's at risk? Jo Shepherd is a surgeon based in London. She's been looking into this and she explained her results to Chris Smith. We looked at the very early immune response to trauma, so major injury, and this can include anything from being hit by a bus, being stabbed, falling from a height, so any physical injury to the body. About 50 patients a day in the UK die from critical injuries such as these, but in those who survive, there's a huge chance of developing what we call multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, which is essentially a failure of organs in the body, including the heart, lungs, liver, kidneys and brain. And even though they've not been directly injured, the body's immune response can become disrupted or exaggerated. And we think that this causes organ dysfunction. So you'd quite like to know who the people are who are at risk of developing that so you can anticipate it and then perhaps even stop it. Exactly. So it's a huge imperative in modern medicine that we try and find out why these patients are developing multiple organ dysfunction. And therefore, we can try and figure out how we might be able to treat it. And how have you done it? We took blood samples in the resuscitation room from 70 critically injured patients, so the first minutes to hours after injury. And what we've done is to try and study the immune cell composition within those blood samples, looking both at the numbers of different types of immune cell in the blood, as well as the um, genes that might be affecting those immune cells. And your rationale is that if you look at what the genes are, and you look at what the cells are, and you know which patients go on to develop this syndrome, you're looking for a sort of cell and gene fingerprint, which is a predictor of who might be at risk of developing this multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. Exactly. So we're looking to see what genes in our immune cells are activated and what genes are maybe downregulated or suppressed. So we think if we can find out what those initial key actors are in the first minutes to hours after injury, we might be able to figure out what is driving this huge response that we see later on down the line. And that's not only useful for predicting organ dysfunction, but it also opens up a huge avenue for discovery research to see are there any therapeutics that we might be able to develop that can maybe modify that response. And how far have you got? Have you got some fingerprint changes now that are good predictors of people who might be at risk? Yes. So um, we found that in the first window of injury, so that hyperacute phase, there are very specific immune changes that occur in that time frame, which by 24 hours are no longer visible. And we found a couple of key areas which might be important for subsequent development of therapeutics. One is the role of blood immune cells, things like natural killer cells, which are a type of white blood cell. Neutrophils are also implicated in this response. And so these are two cell types that we can start to work with to see if there's anything we can develop to alter their response. But also a certain cellular pathways, so cell death pathways, were also featured very prominently. And if we can find a drug or a therapeutic that can enhance cell survival, then we may be able to protect against organ dysfunction. Do you think these people who you see who are at risk, is that something that they're born with, as in that's part of their genetic repertoire? Or is it that the pre-existing situation, perhaps they'd had a viral infection or they had something else wrong with their health that put them into this vulnerable state? We don't fully know the answer to that. We don't know if it's because of a patient's individual genetic makeup or something that might have affected their genes as they were growing up or up until the point that they had the injury, or whether it's something to do with the injury itself specifically. These are still big questions that we need to answer in order to fully uh, understand why some patients develop multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Still sounds promising, doesn't it? Jo Shepherd, she's based at Queen Mary University of London. And if you want to find out more, the work she was discussing came out this week in the journal PLOS Medicine. 
Now it's time for some explosive science, volcanoes. When volcanoes erupt, large amounts of carbon are released into the atmosphere. Historically, we've believed this carbon came from deep inside the Earth. However, new research from Cambridge University has upended this notion. We're joined by Sasha Turchin, one of the authors of the new paper, which is out this week in Science. So first off, Sasha, why were you interested in this problem? Well, we're really interested in understanding how carbon moves around the planet. So when we think about the carbon cycle, you often think about the the movement of carbon between the atmosphere or into the biosphere or into the oceans. And on geological timescales, so tens of millions of years or hundreds of millions of years, we think about the carbon cycle as carbon that comes from volcanoes into the surface of the planet and, and eventually after a certain amount of time will become a rock or a mineral and return back down into the mantle or back down into a sort of rock form where it's locked up for a while. And that geological carbon cycle, it's been a, an open question for, for a little while to understand exactly how carbon is coming out of the surface of the planet and and how it actually gets removed from the surface of the planet. Okay, so you were interested in where this carbon was actually coming from. The volcano shoots out into the atmosphere, but where is it from originally? So how did you go about looking into this? So um, we use something called isotope ratios. So when we think of carbon, you think of carbon having six protons and six neutrons. But actually, 1% of all carbon has an extra neutron in the nucleus. And so because of that, we can actually use that ratio of the heavy carbon to the light carbon to understand the source of that carbon. So recently, we actually, we had this question a long time ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, and there weren't many measurements made just yet. And over the last sort of seven, eight years, there's been many more measurements. There's been an explosion in the number of measurements that are reported in the literature. And so when we went and revisited this question with a master's student, Emily Mason, who's the lead author of the study, um, we went back this past fall, we could see that there was actually enough data that had been developed of this isotope ratio, which is effectively a chemical fingerprint of where the carbon comes from, to be able to say something that was significant. I'll ask you where you found the carbon was from in a second, but I'm curious. Do, I'm imagining someone with a, like a test tube standing over a volcano. How do you get these samples? <laughs> well, uh, there are some test tubes over volcanoes, but no one falls in anymore. <laughs> Um, oftentimes, you can. One of the advances that's happened in the last seven or eight years is that the analytical capabilities have meant that you need smaller and smaller sample sizes, and that has allowed people to take very small vials, either from fumarol gases or through very through bags attached to pumps on the ends of, say, camping poles. So I've sampled things like methane in salt marshes, and there we can take a tent pole with a bag, and you can actually just swirl it using a small vacuum pump, and you can sample it in about a minute or two. And so, in a similar way, you can do this. You don't do this in super hot parts of the volcano, but in sort of some of the more dispersed parts of the volcano, you can sample the gases pretty easy. You can also do when, one another advance that's been great in the last few years is you can make some of these measurements on site, which has allowed for more measurements to be made. So what did you find? Where is this carbon that the volcanoes are shooting out? Where is it coming from? A lot of it is coming from the surface. Right. So a lot of it is, is from other rocks that are very close to the surface and not from as deep in the mantle. It doesn't have that characteristic sample of deep mantle carbon that we were expecting to find. But what was most interesting is actually the volcanoes that are putting out the most CO2. So things like the Italian volcanoes, they're very, very big CO2 emitters. So is Papua New Guinea, for example. Those ones had the most carbon that was coming from the surface, whereas other volcanoes like the Alaskan Arc, which were not putting out, they were putting out mantle carbon, they're not putting out quite as much CO2. So once you did a weighted average of both the amount of CO2 and its chemical fingerprint, it was very heavily weighted towards the crustal recycling. And why is it important to know this? So that isotope fingerprint is the primary tool that we use to reconstruct the carbon cycle over geological time. And so if I'm interested in 500 million years ago or a billion years ago, understanding how much carbon was coming out, how much carbon was going down, how was it going down, was it related to animals or not, I'll use that carbon ratio. So if the ratio in volcanoes can change systematically over time, then that implies that we can't trust those measurements from deep in geologic time for understanding the carbon cycle. Oh, I see. So it's kind of changing what we understand the history of the carbon cycle will have been. Yeah, we'll have to rethink some of our interpretations. So we have interpreted changes that have been measured to be attributed to, say, 
changes in in some process at the surface, but it may be a change in the type of volcanoes that are around. So we have to be um, rethinking and rewriting some books, I imagine. Thanks very much for joining us. That's Sasha Turchin from Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Greer Jackson and Georgia Mills. Still to come, the fastest animals in the world and what could be the fastest computer. Ooh, interesting stuff. But first, it's time for Down to Earth, where we take a look at tech intended for space, which has since found a new home down here on the surface. And this week, we're looking at a technology used to soak up CO2. What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? This is Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists. I'm Dr Stuart Higgins, and in this episode we're talking about how keeping astronauts alive on the International Space Station has led to new ways of capturing carbon dioxide back on Earth. Every day we each breathe out around a kilogram of carbon dioxide, depending on how active we've been. Back down on Earth, the carbon dioxide we produce forms part of the carbon cycle. It's used by plants in photosynthesis to grow into crops that we eat and then so on. But when you're orbiting the Earth in a space station, one or two houseplants aren't going to be enough to keep up with the CO2 you're producing. Without a means of removing carbon dioxide, the concentration in the air will quickly rise to dangerous levels. So one of the key technologies for space exploration is carbon dioxide absorbers. These are chemical sponges that mop up the excess carbon dioxide in the air, allowing astronauts to breathe freely. The European Space Agency, ESA, has been working on a new life support system called the Advanced Closed Loop System for the International Space Station, which will help scrub the air of carbon dioxide as well as generating oxygen and water. It's designed to remove 3 kilograms of carbon dioxide per day, the equivalent of roughly 3 astronauts, and will work alongside existing systems on the space station. It works by passing the carbon dioxide-containing air across a bed of absorbent beads. The beads are made up of a resin coated in a solid amine-based chemical. Amine is the name given to a chemical compound with a nitrogen atom that has a spare pair of electrons. And by spare, I mean that these particular electrons aren't directly forming chemical bonds with other atoms in the compound. These spare electrons make the amine group reactive. They'll bind with the slightly acidic carbon dioxide flowing over them. Eventually the beads will absorb as much carbon dioxide as they can. At this point, the absorber can be shut off from the rest of the spacecraft and steam passed over the beads. This causes the release of carbon dioxide, which can then either be released into space or used in other experiments on board the space station. And the same technology is now being used back on Earth to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Rather than using it to keep astronauts alive, a Dutch company has developed the same ESA technology to extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They aim to use it to improve the atmosphere in closed environments such as airplanes and crowded buildings, and as a way of creating a continuous supply of carbon dioxide. For example, for farmers who might want to raise the carbon dioxide levels in their greenhouses to help plants grow. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, and join me again soon to learn about more space technology that's changing lives back on Earth. And I can tell you in a couple of weeks when Stuart returns, he'll be talking about the space blanket. I have no idea what this is, Georgia. Any ideas? No idea. It sounds super cosy, though. So considering the weather at the moment, I could probably do with one. And speaking of space, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the supercomputer Deep Thought was given the challenge of solving the meaning of life, the universe and everything. The answer was, as fans will know, rather confusingly, 42. But now we may be getting closer to building such a computer ourselves. Because scientists from the University of Sussex have come up with a design for what would be the most powerful computer ever built. It's a quantum computer. And people say machines like it will transform the fields of medicine, e-commerce, and who knows, it might even tell us the real answer to life, the universe and everything. Izzy Clark met with Winfried Hensinger, who's leading the project. The one downside? It's not exactly compact. It's really big. Right now it fills a huge laboratory and actually as we build a large-scale machine, it will certainly fill a whole building. Maybe it will fill a whole football pitch. Think of it as a masterpiece of engineering, tremendously difficult engineering. For one day only, a large bunker was placed in the centre of London which displayed the blueprint to building the most powerful computer on Earth. But... This isn't a computer as we know it. 
Using planes and planes of microchips, scientists can use charged atoms, called ions, to carry out enormous calculations using the laws of quantum physics. Quantum physics is a very, very strange theory and has really weird predictions. An atom can be at two different places at the same time. So you could be standing here and you could be at home having breakfast all at the same time. And that actually exists in the world of quantum physics. And we chain these quantum effects in order to build a very, very powerful computer, which is nothing like a normal conventional computer. The key to this quantum computer is that its circuit can operate by not just being on or off, like a switch, but by occupying a state that is both on and off at the same time. This is down to quantum mechanics, which allow very small particles to be in different places simultaneously, where they stay in these states until they are either observed or disturbed. It's a bit like flipping a coin. The coin is both heads and tails when it's in the air, but it's only heads or tails once it's caught. What you actually see is a very authentic model of a quantum computer as we have it in our lab at the University of Sussex, which have a vacuum better than that of outer space. And inside these vacuum systems, there are microchips, silicon microchips. We've developed a new way where you apply voltages to one of these silicon microchips, and we use these to produce electric fields, and these electric fields make individual charged atoms or ions levitate above the surface What we showed is a new type of approach to quantum computing. It's on these small particles that information is encoded. Our standard computers carry information in bits with values of zero or one. Quantum computers use quantum bits or qubits where they can be both zero and one. Previously, small-scale quantum computing methods use lasers to help process the calculations carried out by these qubits. However, that provided some issues when upscaling. Imagine you wanted to build a large-scale quantum computer, which would require millions or billions of qubits. Imagine you'd need to align millions or billions of laser beams with the accuracy of a hundredth of the width of a human hair. What we've done is we've taken away all this requirement of using all these laser beams and instead replaced that with voltages to apply to a microchip. Because these qubits can be multiple values at the same time, more information can be encoded on them. We're talking about calculations that even the fastest supercomputer would need millions of years to calculate. For such a powerful computer, you're going to need a pretty big circuit board known as a module. It's a large flat microchip that contains lots of routes for the ion to move across, along with the control electronics that allow this movement. Their motion actually looks a bit like a game of Pac-Man. And more modules means more ions, and that's what increases the computational power. We've developed a new way to connect modules. Traditionally, people thought you'd have to use an optical fibre So we came up with a new approach to do this. We move ions using electric field connections from one module to another. And with that, we're going to be able to do this 100,000 times faster than the state-of-the-art technology around right now. And so this is the second exciting breakthrough we have. In some aspects, a quantum computer works in a similar way to a standard computer, running calculations based on an input. But thanks to quantum, both the information a quantum computer can store and its power is incomparable. Imagine you were looking for someone in a public phone book. The standard process would be to go through each entry individually until you found the right person. Because these ions can take multiple states, a quantum computer would be able to search every name and number so that every single possible answer all at the same time. But what can we use these quantum computers for? Quantum computers can tackle problems. Even the fastest supercomputer may take billions of years. It's a whole new set of opportunities. So, for example, creating chemical reactions, like creating new pharmaceuticals, being able to understand how to make new materials, stronger materials, but lighter materials... Think about optimizations on the stock market. Very quickly, classical computers just run out of computational power. 
It's more like getting a new capability, which he didn't have before. But will it do Facebook? We'll just have to wait and see. That was Izzy Clark speaking with Winfried Hensinger from the University of Sussex. Now, from fast computers to quick creatures, how fast should an animal be able to move? And why are the biggest animals, which often pack more muscle, not the fastest? Well, that's what Yale scientist Walter Yetz was wondering. And so he and his colleagues looked at hundreds of animal species and have come up with a new theory that successfully puts a speed limit on most species. Tom Crawford heard how it works. There is a theoretical maximum speed that is expected to increase with body size. However, in order to actually get to any speed, you need to first uh, accelerate. And that's where the crux is for the really large bodied animals. They need much, much longer time, given their larger size, to accelerate. That's why it takes a really large truck uh, longer to get up to 60 miles an hour than it does a small car or indeed a, a motorbike. And what we were able to show is that large-bodied animals simply don't have sufficient amount of energy on board, if you will, to ever get there. Yeah, and in terms of maximum speeds, I noticed that, as you mentioned, in general, the speed increases with the body mass and the size of the animal, and then it begins to tail off and decreases with the large animals. It's almost like a hump shape. Correct. Uh, And it's really fascinating. The relationship applies all the way down to insects well below a gram size and then reaches this peak at uh, medium to large bodied animals and then uh, drops off. Our theory does a good job, we believe, in actually showing what is maximally possible. But then how close you're getting to that will really depend on what your particular evolutionary group that you're in happens to have tried to maximize over the millions of years in which it has evolved. Think about leopard or cheetahs. They're actually smaller than us, but they are, of course, the fastest land animals. And there you're looking at a group that's really over millions of years evolved to outrun their prey. And how successful did your theory fit the actual data? So uh, the uh, first author of the study, Miriam Hurt, spent a substantial time trawling through the literature, contacting experts. And in the end, we were able to uh, pull data for about 450 species. And across those 450 species, both on land, in air and in the water, we were able to predict the observed variation uh, tremendously well with the theory that we have developed. What can we hope to learn from a study such as this? Movement is a really fundamental aspect of life. The theory that we developed helps provide a base expectation about what is the maximum possible speed for animals of a given size. It offers up a really interesting sort of comparison to then see, okay, how far in fact is a given species from that maximum possible speed. So it can teach us a lot about the various trade-offs that a species group may have gone through in the course of evolution. Where do we fit into this as humans? We humans actually are not too far above that sweet spot where there is enough time and energy, given this body size, to actually get close to the theoretically possible maximum speed. Which, in the case of Usain Bolt, is a staggering 30 miles per hour. Walter Yetz was speaking with Tom Crawford about the paper he's just published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Greer Jackson. And this week, we're finding ourselves in very deep water. During the last four shows, we've paddled at the beach, we've gone diving through the reef, and we've journeyed way out into the open ocean. But now it's time to go to the bottom. And who better to take us than someone who's actually been? Wally Fulweiler is an associate professor at Boston University. We get into the submarine named Alvin. The pilot seals the lid and we're lifted up and into the air and off the stern of the boat into the water. We stare out the window and see the sky, then water, sky, then water as we bob up and down. The descent begins. First, we move through sunlit blue waters, seeing organisms swimming and dancing in the water. Salps swirl around the windows, 
gelatinous, water-column-dwelling creatures, translucent, save for their dark orange stomachs and blue rib-like structures. Little see-through pink shrimp and small jellyfish with hints of auburn slide across our view. Before we know it, the light is almost gone, and the water is this amazing dark blue, green, gray, and then darkness. The light is gone around 200 meters. For a brief moment, it's pitch black, and then we see them. We see the light, all the flashing lights, tiny sparks that are barely discernible, and then big, bold, dramatic blazes. For just moments, we see the ghostly outlines of their bodies. We are descending too fast to know what they are, but likely they're scores of bioluminescent fish, jellyfish, squid, and sea worms. We are falling through an ocean of stars. Scared? Not at all. I'm in awe and I'm in love. The joy of seeing this is immense. It's more beautiful and more peaceful than I imagined. It's like home. And then we're on the bottom. A gentle landing on soft mud with lights turned on for illumination. There are legions of red crabs with arms raised ready to defend themselves against our weird metallic ship and scores of eels skidding slowly along next to them. In our fleeting hours on the bottom, we observe streams of methane bubbles, thick white microbial mats, and moonlight carbonite rocks with bacteria mats growing on them that look like thick coats of brown hair. We squeal with delight at large anemones, the color of intestines, and a black urchin the size of a dinner plate. Alvin's arm and hook-like hand, controlled by our pilot, deftly collect samples. Silvery fish with large, bright eyes inspect our work before, all too quickly, it's time to go back to the surface again. Thank you for uh, relating that. That sounds fascinating. And the thing you mentioned is that you weren't scared at all, but it sounds, it does sound quite scary and also quite claustrophobic. How big was this thing you were sitting in? Okay, so it's super tiny, um, and it only fits three adults. So there's a pilot, and he sort of sits in the middle of you, facing forward. And then there's a bench on either side of the pilot for one of the divers. And you can sit there, or it's a or the bench. You can kind of lie down on it, but it absolutely is very tight and closed. And so, how deep did you go? So we got to go to 1,100 meters. And how does that compare with how how deep other people have gone? Most of our ocean hasn't been explored, right? And the Alvin can actually go to a depth of 4,500 meters right now. And it's recent upgrades. It's really close to being able to go to 6,500 meters. So if it goes to 6,500 meters, it can explore over 90% of the ocean. But right now, it's, yeah, it's still rated at the 4,500 meters. The deepest anyone has gone, actually, is James Cameron, um, that movie director. And he went down in the Mariana Trench a couple of years ago, and he went down over 10,000 meters. You mentioned this submarine. It's called the Alvin. What is the Alvin's purpose? The Alvin has been around since the 1960s, and its purpose is to explore the ocean. So you've often heard we know more about the moon than we do about the ocean, and that's and the bottom of the ocean, and that's true. It provides a really valuable opportunity for scientists to go and, and really experience firsthand and see firsthand what the ocean floor looks like. And we have other types of vehicles um, that are unmanned, and they can also go deep, and they can be down there for longer periods of time, um, which certainly provide other benefits, but I think there's really nothing like actually being able to see it um, with your own eyes. I'm thinking now of um, when you sort of fly on an aeroplane, it sometimes does funny things to your head, the pressure. Do you get anything like that, but in reverse when you're sort of going down that deep? Yeah, so that's a really great analogy, and that's a, that's a great analogy to give because um, it's basically the same idea as an airplane, just a different direction. And Sometimes I think people get kind of woozy, and you can certainly, um, just because of some, you know, ear pressure, if there's any change there, I did not notice any of that. I think the larger issue that people have is that when you come up to the surface, there's a few moments where you're kind of bobbing around at the surface, waiting for the boat tender to come get you, to pull you back on the ship. And she's not the most um, elegant ship at the surface of the water, so there's a lot of bobbing, and I think people get seasick. Um, oh no! But, yeah, but, <laughs> in, a, in a cramped three-man. Yes, in the, yes, you become very close with your your pilot and fellow diver. That was Woolly Fulwiler on her fantastic deep sea adventure. Greer, would you would you go down that far? 
It does sound very beautiful, doesn't it, with all those bioluminescent fish and creatures of the deep. And, you know, your analogy of the airplane. I have jumped out of a plane, so why should I fear going down in the deep? What What about you? <laughs> Unlike you, Greta, I'm a tremendous coward, so I think I'll, let, I'll leave you to it. Well, someone's got to do it, don't they? Or maybe something should do it. As well as sending people down, you can send autonomous submarines. Professor Russ Wynne is Chief Scientist of Marine Robotics Robotics at National Oceanography Centre. He joins us now. Wally seems happy enough to go down. I would go down. So why would you think of sending a robot down instead of a willing volunteer? There's a lot of different uses uh, of marine robots in the sea and some of them are either dull or dangerous or what we might call dirty. So there's applications in the marine environment where we might want to send out a marine robot to do something for months at a time that would be really boring if you're down there doing it yourself. There might be areas that we want to access, such as under ice in polar regions, where we just physically can't get to at the moment with manned vehicles. And there might also be areas where we would need to respond rapidly in a situation that could be uh, both dirty and dangerous, like an oil spill, uh, where the ability to send a robot out quickly or to send 100 robots out quickly uh, would give us an advantage. And again, that's just something we couldn't do with, with manned vehicles. Are lots of applications there, but also down there you have to deal with astonishing pressures. How do you engineer something to ensure that they just don't get crushed under all that weight? Well, we, we run a fleet of yellow submarines at Southampton that are depth rated down to 6,000 metres. And actually, the when you see the yellow submarine, and you know some of the listeners will be familiar with the sort of images of Boaty McBoatface and, and other uh, yellow submarines. I'm thinking subs of the being... Beatles. We all live in a yellow submarine. <laughs> exactly. So that's really what they look like. They just don't have people in. And the actual outer shell is fiberglass and it's free flooding. So that outer shell isn't totally depth rated to those pressures. What we have inside, the important bits of the vehicle, like the computer, the batteries, the sensors, they're all individually pressure rated and inside aluminium or titanium housings that mean that they can withstand pressure down at depths up to 6,000 metres. And when you say flooding, do you mean literally parts of the submarine flood whilst these other areas, these electronics don't flood? That's right, yeah. So the outer hull, as it were, the water comes into that, and so it's neutrally buoyant effectively, and then the inner uh, important bits, the guts of the machine, are the ones that we really protect. It's a bit like a human being, you know, you've got your ribcage protects your really important bits, but your skin is what's holding all the water in. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? I dread to think what would happen to our skin if we went down that deep. Now, are these things entirely autonomous, or are they something that you control from the surface? So at the moment, we have two types. We have surface vehicles that we can uh, control via and communicate with via satellite, uh, a little bit like mobile phone communication. So with those surface vehicles, we can keep in contact with them all the time, get data back from them uh, and talk to them and command them to do different things. For the vehicles that go down into the depths, at the moment, they typically have an endurance of a few hours to a few days. And what we'll do is we'll give them a mission that will go into the computer of the vehicle. The vehicle will then go and complete its mission as best it can, and then it will come back to the surface and it will be collected. So at the moment, they're relatively unintelligent. And what we're moving into now is an era where those vehicles will actually be able to adapt to the environment that they're in. So if they find something interesting on the seabed, they will be able to make a decision about how they then go and change their strategy to go and look at that in more detail. And also we're looking at having the vehicles processing a lot of the data they collect on board and they can only then send snippets of those data back to us, maybe via a surface vehicle that acts as like an acoustic communications gateway. Uh, and that way it means that they're sending back the really important bits of information so that the pilot back home can then make a decision about what to do next. So can you give me a couple of examples, perhaps your favourite missions that are currently going on? Yeah, so Boaties, the yellow sub that many of the public will have heard of, and it's just come back from a great mission down in the Southern Ocean near Antarctica, where it's flying around in a, a current where um, cold water is being transported from the poles into the rest of the ocean. We're trying to understand how variations in that current might uh, reflect a wider signal of, of global warming and environmental change. So by actually being able to fly Boaty within that current for periods of up to three days at water depths, of several thousand metres, the scientists that were leading that project got new insights into that current and how it might be uh, varying over time. And there's no other way they could have collected those data. Uh, we've also just come back from a mission in the North Sea, 
where again a, a boaty type submarine was looking at how we can use that technology to monitor our ability to store carbon dioxide in subsea storage reservoirs in areas like the North Sea and lock up that carbon dioxide and therefore hopefully mitigate the increased carbon dioxide levels that we're seeing in the atmosphere. And obviously what you want to try and do is make sure that that CO2 doesn't then start leaking uh, into the ocean and then back up into the atmosphere. So we can use these yellow submarines to go out for weeks and months at a time doing very routine survey of the seabed and making sure that carbon dioxide is locked up under the seabed where it should be. Oh, I do like the fact that uh, this uh, Sir David Attenborough's boat was called, uh, the submarine on board was called Boating McBoatface. What was the one from the uh, North Sea, <laughs> the CO2 mapping submarine called? Well, it's we, the vehicle, the technical name is Autosub Long Range. It's a vehicle that our engineers developed at uh, the National Oceanography Centre. But actually, it's uh, that Autosub Long Range family is what we're now calling the Boaty family. So there's not just one Boaty submarine, there's three, and soon there's going to be six. Uh, so that family is growing quite quickly and we've got all sorts of ambitious missions uh, planned for that family of vehicles in the next few months and years. Cool, imagine that, a whole family of boaty boat faces. Uh, many thanks, Professor Russ Wynn from the National Oceanography Centre. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Greya Jackson. As we just heard, deep-sea robots usually come back to us. But over the last few hundred years, not all vessels have been so lucky. Countless ships and planes have gone down somewhere in the ocean, and finding them is no mean feat. One such vessel was the SS Central America, which sunk in 1857. It was known as the Ship of Gold, and when it went down it had 14,000 kilograms of gold on board. Obviously, a lot of people were quite keen to find it, but it remained undiscovered. Until, that is, a team of people decided to use something called Bayesian search theory, which involves making a map of probabilities using all available data. Larry Stone from Metron Scientific Solutions was involved in the search. The, the way we um, went about this search was using this Bayesian theory. The information available was a last recorded position from Captain Herndon, who was the captain of the ship SF Central America, who actually went down with the ship, by the way, but he hollered this position across to a passing ship at about 6 o'clock at night. The ship went down at, at 8 o'clock. There were passing ships that saw the Central America. Survivors were recovered the next morning at about 8 o'clock. We had a position for that ship that recovered them. So you, you put together all this information in this Bayesian framework, and the way you would do this is by quantifying your uncertainties in terms of probability distributions, and then combining the information into your probability map using something called likelihood functions. And likelihood functions are these common currency of information in this Bayesian analysis. And you put together all these clues, and that's part of the trick here, because the Bayesian approach is a principled approach for incorporating all the information available to you, both objective and subjective, to produce a probability map the location of the, the wreck. And what the probability map tells you is those places that are high probability for the location of the wreck and those that are low. And the high probability areas are where you want to search. Let's break this down. You've lost your favourite hat, you idiot. So how can Bayesian theory help you find it? Well, you know you often leave it in your bedroom, so it's quite likely to be in there. But you also sometimes wear it in your kitchen. And a friend tells you he last saw it in your study. You draw up a grid of locations using all the data available to work out the probability of finding the hat in each location. Maybe taking everything into account, it's got a 70% chance of turning up in your bedroom, but only 20% of being in the bathroom. But what makes this special is that you can update your data as you go. For example, another friend says they heard a rumour it was in the attic, so you increase the probability of it being there. Or you search a room once and don't find it, so the probability it's there reduces. And this is key. Even if you've looked in a place, it can still have a higher probability than being somewhere else. So, according to your model, it sometimes makes sense to search somewhere twice before searching somewhere else. Now, imagine you've got a lot more data, a lot more places to look, a few more computer processes to play with, and that's largely how Bayesian theory is used to find wrecks full of gold on the bottom of the sea. Speaking of which... And in the case of the, the SS Central America, this worked out. We uh, found the wreck, and uh, uh, they recovered a ton of gold bars and coins, and uh, 
sailed back into the harbor to Norfolk and uh, to uh, bands and newspapers and televisions showing their arrival. It's the find of the century. Maths, of all things, is used to find a ship lost for hundreds of years and everyone ends up rich and lives happily ever after. Well, sadly, it didn't quite end that way. Ah, First off, the old insurance companies who'd paid out when the original ship sank demanded and were awarded in court a substantial amount of the gold recovered. And then it was up to Tommy Thompson, the team leader, to divvy up the rest between the investors. But no, (laughs) for some reason he didn't do that. He didn't sell the gold. He didn't give the investors any uh, information about what he was doing with the money. He borrowed a lot of money. And uh, finally the investors asked him to show up in court to uh, explain what he did with the money. Instead of showing up in court in Ohio, he fled to Florida for a couple of years and was finally arrested down there, and he's now in jail until until he will tell people, the investors, what he did with the money. So that's, that's the sad end of that story, unfortunately. While this story doesn't have a particularly happy ending, Bayesian theory is still used all the time in modern day search operations. We did this also for the the search for the Air France uh, 447 flight that uh, crashed on its way from Rio to to Paris. The people in charge of that search were the uh, the BEA, the French uh, Bureau of Inquiries and Analyses, and they had uh, for two two seasons, two summer seasons, searched unsuccessfully for that uh, wreck. Then they contacted uh, Metron and me and said, would you use all all the information available for this, uh, from this uh, search, not only the last reported position of the aircraft, but uh, the debris that drifted and was picked up, and all the unsuccessful search that was done. So he incorporated all that into a probability distribution for them. And the next summer, the beginning of the, of the, the early spring season, they began search by looking in the high probability region of that uh, probability map that we delivered to them, and they found the wreck within one week search. So that that's a big success story. It oh, doesn't wow. always happen that way, but it's very satisfying when it does. So if you don't pay attention to maths in class, just remember it can help you to find sunken treasure ships or land you in prison. That was Larry Stone there from Metron Scientific Solutions. Now we can explore the deep with robots, manned submarines, and we can even use maths to help us find certain things. But why? Well, apart from salvaging things we've lost, like gold, there is also an entire hidden world with new creatures and rare chemistries waiting to be understood. In fact, the bottom of the ocean is of interest to many mining companies, as it's rich in rare earth elements. But should we mine the deep? Joining us is Dr John Copley from the University of Southampton. Um, First up, John, what's down there of interest? Why do we want it so much? It's the metals that we need for our everyday lives. So uh, modern technology needs a lot of things like copper. Your family car's got about 30 kilograms of copper in it, but a hybrid car that emits less CO2 needs about 70 kilograms of copper. And then there are these metals called rare earth elements that we need in, in you know, high technology uh, sort of devices. So things like touchscreens use something called indium. There's neodymium, which we use to make really efficient magnets that we need for things like wind turbines. So there's an increasing demand um, for these metals for our everyday lives. And there are sources of those metals uh, on the ocean floor. So that's why people are starting to get interested in, in, in trying to see if we can mine what's down there. And there are really three types of mineral deposit on the ocean floor. There's uh, hot vents uh, where mineral spires grow that are very rich in copper. Uh, Then there are manganese nodules. They're sort of new potato-sized little nodules on the ocean floor. Uh, They've got a lot of rare earth elements in them. And then there are crusts that form around the edge of undersea mountains called seamounts. And again, they're potentially very rich in rare earth elements. You paint a beautiful picture of all these things growing on the sea floor. But how would you get them? Would you drill them? Would you dredge them? Well, one of the attractions uh, of deep sea mining is unlike mining on land, where you have to to burrow, tunnel down through a lot of rock to get to the things you're interested in mining. These are sitting on the ocean floor. So if you can get down through the water, then potentially you can scoop uh, those resources up. And of course, we have the technology, as we've been hearing about in this program, to operate in deep water. And a lot of it's been developed for offshore oil and gas, you know, for the sort of uh, remotely operated vehicles that people use to do things on the ocean floor. You can adapt and develop that kind of technology potentially into mining machines for the deep. I know it was talked originally about in the 60s and now you say it's feasible but is it economically viable? 
it, it, it always sits on a bit of a knife edge. Um, you know, supply and demand is, is there's, there's also some complex economics uh, involved. But uh, the, back in the 60s, there wasn't the demand for the rare earth elements that we have with modern technology today. So that that is changing things. Now, although they're called rare earth elements, they're not actually that necessarily that rare. It's just that some countries control about 90% of the deposits known on land. So governments are really interested in long-term sort of security of supply, trying to ensure that we don't get caught in any monopolies in the future and therefore interested in exploring new sources. Uh, okay, I see. Presumably, though, this is the similar problem at the bottom of the ocean. Who owns that bit of land? Yeah, although who owns what at the bottom of the ocean has actually already been decided uh, at the United Nations through something called the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And that means that if you have a coastline, you get 200 nautical miles, which is about 370 kilometres of ocean uh, stretching out from your coastline, unless you bump into someone else's claim, in which case you split it down the middle. Uh, And then beyond that, a lot of the ocean is, is international waters. And the United Nations has created an organization called the International Seabed Authority to administer deep sea mining in international waters. Um, Presumably, though, with all human activities, particularly mining, there's got to be some sort of ecological impact. Absolutely. And the real challenge in the deep ocean is we don't understand uh, very much about the patterns of life down there, how things are going to respond to deep sea mining. And each of those types of mineral resources I described has got different kinds of marine life associated with it, and they're going to respond in different ways. And indeed, they're different uh, species in different regions of the oceans. So we have to do an awful lot more exploration and investigation before we can really confidently predict what the impacts of deep sea mining are going to be. So there's a real challenge for us there. I mean, in, in 2011, I surveyed a set of deep sea vents Uh, in the southwest Indian Ocean in a region where China had already been granted a license in international waters by the United Nations to explore for mineral resources but we had no idea what was living at the deep sea vents in that region. We found so far at least six new animal species uh, most of which are not yet known anywhere else in the world other than the site where we were studying. Uh, So it's that kind of thing. It's, It's exploitation potentially racing ahead of the exploration we need to understand what the impacts are going to be. Just to play devil's advocate here, as the old proverb goes, what we don't know can't harm us. So does it really matter if we're causing these creatures to go extinct? Well, in the southwest uh, Indian Ocean, one of the species that we found living at the the hot vents there uh, is a wonderful animal called the scaly foot snail. And it has metal plates on its fleshy foot, unlike any other snail that we know of so far in nature. And the structure of its shell is very good at resisting mechanical damage. And material scientists are learning from that to design, you know, better body armor, better crash helmets, better pipeline protection, scratch resistant paint. So, you know, if we lose biodiversity, we lose the opportunity to learn from the ingenuity of nature. But more fundamentally than that, if you look at the history of our species, we've often rushed to exploit a resource just because we can and only later realized the impacts we're having and said, oh, hang on a minute, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. So deep sea mining uh, really fundamentally offers us an opportunity to show whether we've grown up as a species. Are we still really an adolescent species that just does things because it can? Or can we once show that we've developed the wisdom to pause and decide you know, whether we should go ahead and do something rather than just rush in and do it because we can? It's definitely food for thought. Many thanks, John Copley. And John, I'm going to keep you here for a bit because we've been having great fun this marine month looking at all aspects of the ocean. But we haven't asked the main question, which is why should we care about the ocean? Our everyday lives are connected to the oceans in so many different ways. If you're listening to this podcast elsewhere in the world, it's actually coming to you across a cable, across the deep ocean. Uh, So, you know, all of the Internet, all of our intercontinental phone traffic uses the deep ocean. And, you know, we use a lot of ocean resources. We can learn from the ingenuity of nature uh, in the seas. And of course, everyday lives are having increasing impacts on the deep ocean uh, as well. And so how, how is our ocean doing? Like, how much should we be concerned about it? Certainly, the pressures from our activities on the oceans are increasing, you know, from pollution, from the waste that we generate and our increasing use uh, of resources. But, you know, there are also what I like to think of as islands of hope out there. There are examples of where our, our personal choices and our everyday lives 
have made a difference for the better. So in the UK, we've had the ban on plastic bags in shops, and that's substantially reduced the amount of litter on our beaches. And this week in the UK, we've also heard there's going to be a ban on microplastics in cosmetics and some sort of personal care products. Uh, and so I think that as we become aware of how our lives are connected to the oceans and how a healthy ocean benefits us, then together we can choose the future we want for our blue planet. And what are the, the biggest challenges ahead for the ocean? What is the future? And what can people listening who love the ocean, what can they do at home to, to try and help? I think we're all becoming aware of the amount of plastic waste that we tend to generate if, if we don't pay attention to it in our everyday lives. And an awful lot of that plastic ends up washed into rivers and so on and eventually in the oceans uh, and uh, billions of tons of it. And in fact, probably the lion's share of it actually generated within the past decade or so. Now, people are starting to really wake up to this and we're seeing some differences. We're seeing you know, pressure on manufacturers. And that's something that each of us can think about and that collectively will make a difference to the oceans for the future. Thank you very much, John Copley, and thanks to all our other guests this week. That's Russ Wynn, Wally Fulweiler and Larry Stone. And now it's time to round off the show with our final critter of the week. Tom Crawford is here to reveal this week's villainous candidate. Name, anglerfish. Phylum, chordata. Location, everywhere from the shallows to the deep sea. Special abilities, sexual symbiosis and the master of luring unsuspecting fish to their death. Joe Lavery, marine biologist for Sea Life Europe. There are more than 200 species of anglerfish identified. They're found across the world, and whilst some are the size of a thumbnail, others can be the size of a small dog. And their names read like a list of supervillains. I give you the humpback, the horned lantern, the toothed sea devil, and the prickler. But where does the name anglerfish come from? They get their name from a sort of fishing rod on their head. It's actually a modified dorsal spine, which we call an elysium, and it's an essential part of how the anglerfish hunts. Each elysium has an apparatus at the end, and these vary between the species. So whilst some have a lure that resembles a shrimp, others have a photophore that produces a glimmer of light in the dark sea. The form of each elysium is perfectly adapted for the prey that's being hunted. So the elysium literally acts like a carrot on a stick, from tricking other fish into thinking it's prey to lighting up the dark and attracting smaller fish like moths to a flame. So what happens at mealtime? They can go for days on end without eating, waiting for the perfect moment to strike, and when the time does come, they're able to eat a fish which is twice their own size. Move over, snakes. There's a new Swallowing Animals Hole star in town. But of all the fascinating traits of an anglerfish, one species takes it to the next level. The deep-sea anglerfish lives more than a mile underwater on the desolate ocean floor, and here in the deep sea, it's rare for two anglerfish to meet. So if a male and a female do cross paths, they make sure not to waste the opportunity. When a male angler comes across a female, he bites into her. Now, lots of fish, and indeed sharks, do this, but the anglerfish then excretes an enzyme, and in just a few hours, this enzyme causes the mouth of the male to fuse to the body of the female. A few days later, the digestive tract of the male becomes embedded into the body of the female, and as the male is so much smaller than the female, this means that from now on she will carry him around with her until she's ready to fertilise her eggs. In other words, the male really is only good for one thing. Thanks to Joe for talking us through the whole animal swallowing, male enveloping, carrot-on-a-stick wearing supervillain that is the anglerfish, our critter of the week. Oh, which critter gets your vote? The hermit crab, the sea anemone, the jellyfish or the anglerfish? Let us know. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Next time, though, we'll be back to Question of the Week as normal. And that is all we've got time for this week. Next time, we'll be exploring how scientists are aiming to use nature to help clean up nuclear waste and keep us safe. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.